Welcome to Becoming Church, the podcast where we discuss how the message and movement of Jesus is not just about becoming Christians, but about becoming the church. I'm your host, Kristen Mockler-Young, and I'm so glad you are joining the conversation. Hey, listeners, it's Kristen, and I'm back from the future post-interview with some bonus information for you. My conversation with Rasul Berry was meant to be a quick chat about Juneteenth, but what ended up happening is that Rasul answered some really tough questions and addressed misconceptions that a lot of people in majority culture have about Black people and their culture. I really believe it will help us better love our brothers and sisters of color better. So I hope you'll be able to come back next week for that episode. Right now, we wanted to drop a bonus episode for next week's observance of Juneteenth. Let's get to it. Rasul Berry, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Kristen, for having me. I'm, I'm excited to be with you. Yes. So before we jump into Juneteenth, I went to your website and it says that you are a teacher and a pastor, which I get, mm-hmm. we have this in common, right? But then it yeah. says, get this, you are a cultural translator. Yeah. Explain that to our listeners. Yes, yes. So that's a, a phrase that, as I kind of was thinking about my story and the story that I sensed that, you know, God was uniquely positioning me to contribute to, that was the phrase that came out, cultural translator. Because when you think about a translator, like a, in language, it's somebody that, um, you know, communicates and breaks down one language to uh, someone that doesn't have access to those insights and perspective from another language, you know, so Spanish to English, you know, French to, you know, Spanish, all of those things. And I felt like what God was, you know, revealed in my story was that um, I've been in between cultures a lot, you know, and so oftentimes even within the same language group, like English, you still can have um, cultural breakdowns of barriers of communication. And I felt like I could see God revealing in my story that he's put me in in that same spot as a translator to be able to say, hey, this is what's going on in this culture. And that's why these things are matter. And that's why these things are significant. And like to another culture and then vice versa, And when we are able to do that, and I think that's actually the call for all believers as part of the Great Commission. Um, But I think sometimes, you know, there are folks who uh, God is uniquely positioned to to help us accelerate in that. And so I wanted to capture that. Uh, It's something that I've been able to, been around the country, lived in different parts of the world, uh, lived in different parts of the country, traveled to different parts of the world, and try to translate things to people who may not have direct access to those stories. I think it's so cool. I love that title. And as someone who pastors a multi-ethnic church, um, many of our listeners understand this, but for somebody who maybe grew up like me in a very white bubble, Mm -hmm. I want you to be very explicit because at one point you were like, you know, even within English, we've got different cultures and different things that would need to be translated. Yeah. Like what? Like just spell it out there for anybody who may be missing it. 
Absolutely. And so, uh, love it. You like, make it plain, brother. Make it plain. So <laughs> Tell them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, one of the things that is particularly a challenge in cultural translation, and especially if we look at the U.S. context, is that when there is a different linguistic dynamic, like when I go to, I, I studied abroad in Cameroon and West Africa, uh, Central Africa, geographically, right below Nigeria. And it's a predominantly French-speaking country. So when I went there, I knew I was going to be needing to brush up on my French and needing to communicate. Yeah. The challenge with going from one culture to another when you speak the same language is you often are not even aware that that translation is needed and necessary, mm -hmm. especially if you're in the dominant culture. And what I mean by the dominant culture is that if the majority of the people in your world and in your orbit um, looks like you, talks like you, thinks like you, then you may not even be aware of the reality that you need some translation happening. And I think this especially happens in the context of race and ethnicity in the country. I mean, when you just have a standpoint where you're, you know, 75% of the population is white, American, and of European ancestry, whereas 13 to 14 percent are African-American, um, you know, or, you know, and it then you don't have to know the things that are relevant in another community in order to kind of understand what's going on. So, for example, in the church context, I remember uh, inviting some of my white brothers and sisters to a black church before. Yeah. And they were like, wow, we didn't, I I never would think to enter, like say something while the preacher was preaching. Like, you know, we'll you got people, back. amen, yeah. come on, brother, break it down. And they were like, <laughs> I would have thought that was rude. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it seemed yeah. like it was okay. And so I was able to translate. There's a call and response tradition that goes all the way back from Africa in which there isn't this, the, the lines between the communicator and the audience are much more porous in the African-American context than they are in the European context, where it's like, you know, silence is the way to, to show respect. Yeah. And from a Black church tradition, silence is the worst thing that you could have right. in a church. You're like, what am I doing? And so, so those are ways in which that cultural translation needs to happen. And I think also in the context of history and stories, and this is something that is part and behind the context of some of the tension that we experience when we talk about issues of ethnicity or history or race is because some of those stories are, are things that are important and significant for one group and completely unknown to another. Yeah. And so helping us just get in the same space and be able to translate for each other is, is really helpful. Well, and I think the key that you just said there too was, and I, I want to spell this out clearly for people, it was invitation. You said you brought, you invited yeah. your white brothers and sisters into a black church. And I think that's the difference. Like I remember, I mean, I'm going to go way back in the day, but I remember as a kid, maybe an older kid, but people talking about Ebonics, right? And how like, oh, if only black people could speak the right way and they're just doing this because of X, Y, Z, blah, blah, blah. And I didn't know, and I lived in a white bubble. So I was just like, I'm going to believe what I'm told, right? right? Fast forward to then becoming a teacher and having all different kinds of kids in my classroom to the point where then I was like, I need to understand where not like it started for me. I need to understand your home life. It didn't even start with, I need to understand your culture. I need to understand the traditions. I just need to understand the actual family that you're coming from. Right. And it's that, you know, invitation. It's that learning piece that is going to get us to the place of 
maybe understanding more than what we could have known otherwise, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, no, that was a good example of something that was misunderstood even. And I actually went back to that whole controversy of, of Ebonics and I realized it, the, the story was misrepresented. So what people oh, heard sure. was that teachers were um, being given instruction by this academic idea coming from college to validate and not correct African-American children whose uh, grammar yeah. conventions did not conform yeah. to formal grammar as we were learned. And everybody went hysterical to be like, that's right. crazy. You're, you're not going to teach these kids how to speak talk, and talk properly. That's yep. ridiculous. Political correctness run amok. <laughs> when in actuality, what the um, professor and what the theory was saying was that there is an internal logic to the grammar communications that are happening. And knowing that internal logic will help you teach them the, conven the conventions of formal grammar. So the, the professor wasn't trying to tell them, don't correct them. It yeah. was saying, understand that there is a rhythm and a, and, a, and a thought process behind, there's something underneath and even a grammar structure that knowing those things can help you make the connections to help them make the connections so that they can learn the formal way and the informal way, but it's not just about erasing and obliterating the right. y'alls and the ain'ts. And we know, you know, you're from the South, y'all. Right, right, right. And y'all is actually, it's funny when you, when you, um, when you learn, like, you know, I studied French and other languages, there's a different you for singular than plural. Like there's two and there's vu, right? Right, All right. Who is is y'all? Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's something that we don't have in English that is actually very helpful, except for we have it in South and in the Black culture. And so, those are examples of things that of how oftentimes stuff gets miscommunicated, and the people are hearing, and then they present it, and then it gets political, yeah. um, and it's presented as one thing. And it was Ebonics in the '90s. You could talk about other things today that have yeah. that same aspect of what was what is being meant by the original idea is not what is being articulated or presented. Uh, wait, I'm sorry. Are you saying that media and politics are um, miscommunicating things to us? Is that what yeah. Russell can You know, <laughs> newsflash, breaking news at 11, yes. Oh my gosh. All right, so you work for Our Daily Bread, is that right? Yes, Our Daily Bread Ministries, yep. Okay, now, Our Daily Bread Ministries, I remember being in the Methodist church as a little girl. And we had these teeny tiny little books <laughs> yeah. that were always laid out on the table, like in the back of the sanctuary. And that is always what I think of when I think of our daily bread and they switched out like monthly or something, but that is not what y'all are doing anymore. <laughs> well, right? we're still doing that. We still oh, doing are? that. Okay. Yes, but it's not all of what we're doing. And actually it never was all of what we were doing, oh. um, but it was the thing that the that was the most it was the thing that was the most known and was the most widespread was the uh, Our Daily Bread the devotional booklets. Yes. And so um, actually the original name for the ministry was Radio Bible Class, RBC Ministries. And it was really? started um, as a, you know, like by a pastor who was kind of teaching and sharing his sermon ideas and notes. And then it, people started asking for them 
in written form, like the transcript. So then they started writing them in a devotional format. So the devotional actually came after the media content that was created. But then, you know, the Lord really just took it. And it's now in over 100 countries all over the world, translated. Millions of people get them um, every every month. But uh, in addition to the devotionals, we also are a publishing house that produces books. Um, we also do audio content, like the podcast that I have, Where You're From, and Discover the Word, which is on radio uh, stations all over the country. And we also do media content, uh, videos um, and films, uh, both sh- short versions. So we actually do daily devotionals in a video form format okay. um, that you can find on YouTube. But then we also do long-term, long uh, documentaries and feature-length kind of films to help people, all of it with the same mission to make the life-changing wisdom of the Bible accessible and understandable to all. I love it. I love it. And you did one of these long-form documentaries on Juneteenth. Was it last year or a couple of years ago that you guys did that? Uh, we did it last year. We did released last it last year. year. That's what I thought. Yep. I remember we showed a clip of it on a Sunday morning mm. um, to our congregation. And so basically, and I'm going to let you get into it, but basically you went to Galveston, Texas Mm-hmm. to the last, to the place that the last slaves were freed. And you went to the homes and the churches and you talked to the people there, like talk to me about yeah. the documentary. Absolutely. And so um, Juneteenth has always fascinated me um, both on a cultural level as an African-American who didn't really, I don't know when my ancestors, you know, experienced freedom, like specifically, yeah. Um, you know, they were on the southeast part of the country. So my grandfather was South Carolina, my grandmother, uh, Georgia, pretty much on both sides. And so the story of Juneteenth um, was very interesting to me, one, because I didn't really grow up hearing a lot about it and being like, wait a minute, you know, I was always taught the Emancipation Proclamation is what ended slavery. Same. And, and so um, then you start to realize, no, nope, the story is actually um different and more complicated than that. And so um, that was one piece. And then when I started to see this momentum toward a federal holiday um, and started reading into it, realizing that it had some deep spiritual and Christian roots in terms of those who, uh, like the first Juneteenth celebration happened at a church in Galveston. And so I was like, you know, I would love to one day go there and talk to the folks to get a real... uh, history and to be able to offer that to the world so that people could really understand um, the fullness of the day, especially before it gets commercialized, before it gets, you know, kind of taken and and, and, uh, and maybe um, just watered down. And so uh, we had the opportunity to, and we started in Galveston and that was the, the plan originally was just to go to Galveston. But yeah. then we start, we realized quickly that we couldn't stay Justin Galveston because the story expanded from there. So we went to Houston, uh, to a place called Freedmanstown, which was the first established community of, uh, you know, emancipated people in Texas. And then we went to Dallas-Fort Worth. And it was just an incredible, inspiring, you know, challenging story that we thought was really important to share. I mean, even... And to me, what's crazy or eye-opening, I guess, crazy is probably not the right word to use. What was really eye-opening was the interviews with the people who were there or remembered it or their family was tied to it. Because for me watching it, I was like, oh, if these people are still alive, 
this wasn't actually that long ago. Like if these people can remember parents, grandparents, whoever, if these people that you're talking to, that you're interviewing can say like, this is the house that my family's from and all of these things, it really wasn't that long ago. And that kind of blew my mind. Yeah. You really, when you uh, like are sitting across, so for example, one of the reasons why we realized quickly we needed to extend the trip beyond Galveston to go to Houston was because Galveston was the biggest city in Texas at the time. And it was, it's an island off of the main land on East Texas. And it was because that was the the harbor and the ships that would come and take the tobacco and the cotton uh, that was, you know, harvested by uh, slave labor to the rest of the country. But it wasn't where the enslaved people had space to live or, or you know, and be. Yeah. And so they went to Houston, Texas, okay. and which was only at that point about 20 years old as a city. It was a young city. But um, there was a pastor named uh, Reverend Jack Gates who uh, started a church, started businesses, started schools, and really created the type of community network of support organizations and institutions that um, allowed for these newly emancipated people to have a new start on life. And so I got a chance to talk to his great granddaughter, yeah, um, who is also carrying on, on that tradition. And when you think about it, I mean, that's, you know, so her father was his grandson. Like, it was, it was right. just like, this is so close. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, and so those were stories that were very impactfully pa pa passed down from generation to generation. And everybody who I talked to there, you know, had a story to tell that um, was very clear and they, they understood, yeah, we've been celebrating this day because my grandma, you know, yeah. celebrated this day because her mother was freed on that day. And you right. go, wow, like that, right. that is very close. And, and yeah. that makes you think like, what is that? What are the implications of that for how we think about this history and, and our country when you can, you know, see it that close in proximity? Right. Right. Well, and and then for those of us, and we'll get we'll get into that. But then I think for those of us who are trying to better understand, it's like, oh, no wonder there are still implications. No wonder we're still seeing right. effects of things now. It wasn't that long ago. <laughs> no, not at all. Yeah. So one of the things that the documentary covers is how the Bible essentially went from justifying slavery to becoming like the inspiration for freedom. Right. right. So right. how does this happen? Did somebody just like find a new scripture or find a new translation or how? <laughs> Change yeah. Them. Yeah. No, uh, the, you know, we do talk a lot about, um, you know, this important role that scripture had to play in the rationale uh, for um, yeah. justifying slavery and the sense of inspiration for liberation. For, and, and even in, and what you saw is that there was always contested uh, space. Well, if you go a bit further, I want to make this a, into a long history lesson, but <laughs> I will say that for the most part, it was established in Christendom um, for centuries that Christians ought not enslave others and definitely not other Christians. Like that was kind of the basic in Europe and, and you know, going back to the 15, 1400s, 1300s. That began to change, really promoted mostly by the economic and political power attached to enslavement. So you have, for example, um, I believe it was in Virginia, where um, 
because the standard tradition had always been if someone converted to Christianity at the very least, like, or was a Christian, then you couldn't, you had to free them. And so um, there were missionaries who wanted to evangelize to enslaved Africans, but the enslavers did not want them to because that meant that they would have to um, free them. And so they ended up coming up with a workaround and basically promising or coming up with an interpretation that said that the baptism and the conversion did not mean that they had to release them. And this is a a, a essentially a, an innovation that is created to be able to um, to maintain the institution. And so I think that's an important um, thing to develop because it wasn't just like everybody was like, yo, we've just searched the scriptures as best we could and this is the best interpretation. And right. even the other aspect is this wasn't just slavery in general, but what happens in America is it becomes racialized, right? And so while in the beginning, anybody could have been indentured servants and things like that, um, it becomes very quickly you know, realized uh, in the 1600s that it needs to be a race-based caste system and so that ends up becoming added to the justifications as well. So then you have myths like the curse of Ham, where people misinterpret Genesis to say that God, you know, cursed Ham. And so the Africans are descendants of Ham. And so that's why we're supposed to keep them enslaved. And that's not anything. I mean, the curses to Canaan that is mostly understood to be fulfilled during the Canaanites. And so so there's a lot of these um, innovative and deceptive ways of twisting scripture um, to justify it. But by the time you get to, you know, slavery becoming the main economic engine of the, of the America, of the Americas too, because this was both North and South, um, you have a well-worn tradition of people saying this is right to do. Yeah. However... There were always faithful Christians who understood the Bible and say, no, this is not right. And so as early as the 1600s, you have like, for instance, the Quakers that are making the case to say, hey, Jesus taught us that we should love our neighbor and we should do unto others as we would have them do unto us. As a result of that, we should not own enslaved people like we should yeah. enslave people or you have other abolitionists um, who make the case ethically morally um how do you beat someone how do you rape yeah, someone right. how do you sell someone's kids and 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 the bible clearly talks about slave trading and first corinthians chapter 7 is things like these are people that won't inherit you know um the kingdom of god people who you know are man stealers it uh, says in the king yeah. james version and so you have these uh debates that are happening but the, the main thing is to understand that when now, there's a combination. Some Africans came over as Christians already, um, but the majority of whom um, converted uh, and started following Jesus, they started seeing the text. And what they heard and understood was something different than even what they were being taught. And so from the very beginning, they hear about the Exodus story. Wait a minute. You're telling me there's a God in heaven who saw the oppression and the enslavement of his people and yeah. miraculously uh, defended them and liberated them against a powerful nation. 
is that something that'll preach? You know what I mean? And right. so onwards and upwards, you see, uh, but then ultimately, even in G- Jesus's inaugural address, when he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, recovery of sight to the blind, freedom to the captive. And then yeah. it says the acceptable year of the Lord's favor, which is the year of Jubilee, which was the festival in Leviticus 25, where the people of Israel had in their very rhythms of one of the festivals to cancel debts and release people who were in bondage. And so those who were in bondage in America saw that as a hope and saw that as inspiration and saw that as a as a as a vision for the fullness of you know Jesus's vision for the world. And they held on to that and used that as motivation and inspiration that God is going to deliver us like he did them. Yeah. My gosh. That is I'm like, I need to just sit in the last couple of minutes of information you gave me. There is so much that you just said for people to take it like y'all like rewind and go back and listen to that again before you keep on. Okay. So let's just say, right. All of these things, Jesus, scripture, all of this, it says, this is the way to live. This is the way to not mistreat people and whatever, but surely not all of the people who were slave owners we're not Christians. So does this mean that they're just turning a blind eye to the scriptures? Mm. Whew, now you're asking <laughs> now, now we're going to the deep, deep waters. Um, you know, I think it's an interesting question to understand. And part of the reason why I I thought it was important to start with the context that it wasn't just like slavery was widespread in Europe you know, where, which was the epicenter of Christianity in the middle, you know, of the second century, you know, um, second millennium. So like 1500s, 1600s, 1400s, there, there was, there was already a, a sense in which um, there was an incompatibility with the brutality of uh, definitely a chattel slavery that emerges in America, which is more diabolical and um, heinous than anything that we see in previous iterations, right? Like it, there was never a system where everybody's kids that came after them were also born into slavery and you were a slave and I have the right to, you know, to abuse your body. And it's like all of these things that kind of happen in the American context um, were its worst forms. Not to say that it never happened before, but never as a whole institutional, societal, governmental framework. And so um, those things... People, I think because we have like a sense of consciousness and guilt, people have to kind of justify being able to do things. And so I think you have a lot of folks that have, they could care less about what the scripture really said. And they just really wanted to justify, you know, what they were doing. You did, But then you also have others who looked at, you know, passages like slaves obey your masters and um other instructions that seem to indicate that, well, it seems like the Bible may be ambivalent about this, or even mm-hmm. if it's done in the right way. And um, now I would say that even those verses are really taken out of context when you look at the full, um, you know, uh, force of yeah. the New Testament vision um, and even what that was supposed to be. And so that is a, uh, so I would, I find that a lot of people want to find justifications for things that are the easiest path. And really that'll preach to us too, right? Like that's not just a 1800 situation. Like I have to be mindful 
when I'm reading the scripture that I'm not just interpreting it in a way that feels good to me or it justifies or what I already want to believe. Um, so I'm not going to try to get into someone's heart or mind and say this is what they were doing, but I will like, or this is the reason why, sure. but I will say that um, there are a lot of people who can tend to use the veneer. I'll, I'll just, I'll quote Jesus, right? Hey. Many people will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this in your name? Didn't I preach in your name? Didn't I cast out demons in your name? And I will tell you, I will tell them on that day, I never knew you. And now you want to talk about something that'll bake your noodle. All right. Is Jesus <laughs> saying that someone could actually exercise and cast out a demon in the name of Jesus and not actually know Jesus? I think that's what he's saying. And that's really deep. How that all works out, I'm not going to even try to go there. Like, like that's for somebody <laughs> else to figure out. I'm just saying the scripture says that we shall know a tree by its fruit. Yeah. And that, um, you know, and that's something that we need to keep in mind that just because someone writes books or preaches sermons doesn't mean that they have authentically had a regenerated heart. Yeah. Well, and I'm glad you made that that distinction because I may have asked you a very pointed question on purpose <laughs> okay. because I think it is very easy for us sometimes to look back at other people and go, well, how could they? And they justified yeah. scripture and blah, blah, blah. But exactly what you said, people have a sense of consciousness and guilt and so they need to justify things and use scripture. And I think that we're still doing it. Like, I think yeah. this is still happening today. And so, yes, if we can see clearly, you know, where, where other people may have done that in the past, then I think that only means that, hey, guess what? Like, we may still be doing that now and we have to be careful and aware. Yeah. I mean, one, one real quick uh, thing, because the letter to Philemon, I think more accurately and profoundly than anything else in the New Testament reveals the Apostle Paul's perspective on slavery. And I mentioned him because in particular, Ephesians 6 and Colossians are oftentimes fours quoted as were quoted as justifications. And when, one of the things that you see is the difference between um, how, him encouraging people how to live in a system that is beyond issues, beyond their control, right? Mm -hmm. Like he talked about contentment in Philippians, right? Because he, it, while he was in prison, now he wasn't saying prison is good or right. everybody should be in prison or we should imprison people for no reason for proclaiming the gospel. He was just saying, I've learned the secret to being content. I can still do all things through Christ who strengthened me even while I'm in the prison because I've learned the secret of contentment in Christ. But when you really want to understand what he's saying about you know, slavery, we got to read the letter to Philemon, which was yeah. a leader in the church. And he says, look, this runaway for a person who was in your house as a slave, Onesimus, I, I am sending him back to you, but not as a slave, as a brother. Right. And and he and he was supposed to read this to the entire church. Right. And so and, and church tradition will tell us that Onesimus later becomes a bishop, right? And he does free him. And so there's um a sense in which when we see, when we really want to get into the word and really understand what it is that the gospel, the gospel is good news because it liberates mind, body, and soul and creates within us the opportunity to be a kingdom people who show to the world the goodness, the righteousness, and the justice of Jesus. Well, like you said, the only way to really do that is to look at all of scripture, right? Yeah. Not to pull out the justification verses and go for anything yeah. for slavery for, I mean, gosh, like pick your, pick your topic here, mm -hmm. but to look at scripture as a whole. Yeah. 
All right. So on Instagram, I did a post and I told people you were coming on and I let them ask you questions. And so, and and they did. And so I picked two of them. And so the first question that I have for you um, from our Instagram listeners is what is a misconception that a lot of people have about Juneteenth? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Big misconception is that it is the day in which all slaves all people who were enslaved anywhere in the United States were free. Okay. Um, now, one thing I'll just say, even when I said enslaved, that one thing I learned when I was really spending time uh, with those in Texas is the, the importance of words. Like growing up, I just heard slaves used to describe um, people who were in that position of bondage. But one of the ways that we can begin to really recapture their humanity is referred to them as enslaved people because a slave uh, yes. almost indicates that like this is who you are right mm -hmm. you're a slave mm -hmm. <laughs> as opposed to no something happened to you <laughs> like you you didn't weren't born in that state you were enslaved so but in any case yeah it's a person it's a person first language exactly. a person who was enslaved instead of being yes. that becoming their identity I yeah totally get so that. I, you know so that was just a little sidebar but in terms of the misconception so with Juneteenth celebrates is when the Union Army comes to Galveston, Texas, coming from the eastern part as a liberation force. And so when first when Texans first, uh, those who were enslaved in Texas, Africans who were enslaved in Texas first experienced freedom. And even that was only in Galveston, because if you think Texas is big, right? Yeah. And so they get there on June 19th, they get to Houston June 20th, they get to you know, Dallas a few days after that. And so it is, it didn't, it wasn't like the reset button was complete on June 19th. Um, and then even that, there was still, the Emancipation Proclamation only um, in, freed those who were enslaved in states that had rebelled against the Union. So there were a couple states, Delaware and Kentucky, who were slave states, but who did not join the Confederacy. And so those states were not um, at all um, related to the Emancipation Proclamation. So really, yes, yes, yeah. This is again, like, yeah, it was. So, so it took the Thirteenth Amendment to um, to essentially make bondage and voluntary servitude um, illegal in the United States. And the Thirteenth Amendment doesn't get ratified until January eighteen sixty six. So oh, wow. even after Juneteenth, with you know, there were still people who in other parts of the country who uh, who didn't experience freedom. And so, um, but having said all that, because life is messy, you know, and, and history is, there was a concerted decision in Texas years ago for lots of different reasons to make June 19th, like that was the day that even those who were in Houston or who were in Dallas, who maybe had a later date, that because that was when freedom first hit, that was mm -hmm. when they decided to celebrate. And I think in the same way that the resonance of that day went beyond just Texas to other places, because there was never a day where we celebrated the end of slavery as a country and all of what that meant. So similarly, when you think about Passover, right? Like, what is Passover about? Passover is this day in the Jewish calendar, which God set aside for them to celebrate their liberation, you know, yeah. on a particular day. Now, there were probably some Jews who weren't 
in bondage like Moses wasn't, you know what I mean? So, but that wasn't his day, but he still instituted the celebration of that day because that's when so many experienced it on one particular moment. And this is what gives us an opportunity to have that same type of celebration. Okay. Wow. Just knowledge just coming out of everywhere. Bits of information, the things we were never taught in school, right? All right. So the second um, question I pulled from Instagram kind of piggybacks onto that one. And this is from a white person who wants to know, is there a way for us to celebrate or honor Juneteenth without crossing a line into appropriation for something that does not apply to us? Yes. Uh, Great question. And uh, I think that the answer, the short answer is yes, there's definitely a way to celebrate it without crossing the line into appropriation. One of the reasons why we put not just the film together, but our Daily Bread Ministries also put together a devotional booklet. Um, uh, We did one last year called Juneteenth, Our Story of Freedom. Um, And then this year it's called Freedom for All. And it's available. You can order um, by going to experiencevoices.org or you can get the digital version of that, um, you know, plan as well. But um, we created that. We created a uh, album, a soundtrack that go along with the film. And we did that to give people the resources to just educate themselves, to um, be inspired um, and to invite other people into conversation. And I think that that's a uh, a great way to um, explore, and and it starts with asking questions more than answers, right? Like, say, hey, I'm thinking about you know hosting a screening for Juneteenth, you know, uh, would you be interested in, in coming and checking it out? Or you know, I'd love to, you know. And I think that kind of approach, as opposed to you know, we had some high profile um, miss cues last year with people putting out ice cream flavors and Juneteenth ice cream flavor or like napkins and and in a way that just I think was disconnected and felt very um commercialized kind of like the Christmas commercialization and so I think there are ways to do it wrongly but I think that when you do it with it from a spirit of like I want to join something that someone else is doing or I want to invite people to have a conversation around these things and to reflect. And also, I'll just say this lastly on that, it's okay for us to be figuring this out. It's only two years old, you know what I mean? And so I think for all of us, like we're building out those rhythms of what does that look like to do it well? And so, um, so yeah, I think that we'll continue to learn just like we did with Martin Luther King Day and the whole idea that it's a day on, not a day off. And so now community service is a big part of it. But um, I'm old enough to remember when that was still being worked out and people yeah. really didn't know how to do it. And so so I think that um, there's definitely a way to do it. And I think it starts with leading with questions and, and invitation to conversation and dialogue um, and not presumption. Well, that's very kind and gracious of you to give people, you know, space to try to wiggle room to figure it out. I think for me, the way I know, because I I love social media, I love using my voice on social media, but also being the kind of person that I am, I'm always very aware that I don't want to come across as performative, even if I know like in my spirit that I'm not being performative. And so for me, like with Juneteenth, if I never, ever spoke about diversity, about caring about anybody else, um, none of this. And then all of a sudden on Juneteenth, I'm like, here I am in my red, yellow, and green shirt like that. (laughs) Maybe it's the wrong way to do it, friends. So if you're not sure, (laughs) you know, yeah, no, that's a great word. And I, I'm going to say two things on that word, because one, what it says is that 
these days are not meant to be ends into themselves, but are meant to inspire and motivate and challenge change. And one of the key themes in the film, and this is something that we discovered, is that the struggle, because it wasn't just one of the key phrases that is said there, is that the soldiers didn't come to inform, they came to enforce. One of the myths that I had heard was that Texas was so far away that people just didn't know that slavery had ended. And so then they just had some messenger come in and say, hey, y'all, that slavery, is, you know, what? Civil War has ended and the Confederacy, which Texas was a part of, lost. And so now you free all the slaves. Oh, we just didn't know. No, that wouldn't happen <laughs> at all. They were yeah. very aware. They were resistant to it. And what that leads me to emphasize is that freedom and justice always comes with a, ch a challenge. Uh, Frederick Douglass said, without struggle, there can be no progress. And so that struggle for absolute equality didn't end in 1865. And we and we track that story all the way um, through the present in the film. And so it's a day-to-day -day process. And so we have opportunities and maybe, you know, watching the film or this, you know, honoring the day can be a catalyst, a, 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 a light, but it should be something like you were saying, Kristen, like that is being expressed throughout your life, not just on one particular day. And when you do express it in that way, you start to develop the the rhythm, the, the you start to learn the language better, right? You become fluent in how to not be performative, but instead be an ally. So yeah. it's, it's it works both ways. Yeah. Well, I think too, you have to ask yourself, like, am I doing this to try to get hits? Am I doing this to come across a certain way? Or am I right. doing this because I genuinely believe that this is the kind of person that God called us to be. And I'm, I'm doing this because I genuinely love other people and want mm. to encourage and challenge other people to also love other people and to love their neighbor. Like Jesus said, you know, Amen. yeah. and actually let's, before I let you go on with your day, I want to take it one step further. And sorry for the abrupt ending, but then we dove in deep. I really hope this episode has helped you to better understand what to do with your day on for Juneteenth. Be sure to check your local PBS station for showtimes of faith and freedom in your town and come back next week for a vulnerable, honest conversation on racial injustice, how scripture has been used to justify it, and how we can be proud of our culture without becoming nationalists. Yes, we went there. <laughs> we went there and it was good. Don't miss it. And thanks so much for listening.